This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, international labor lawyer Yvonne Hutchinson and Claire Brown, professor of economics at UC Berkeley, explore the positive and negative impacts of technology on our work, our society, and ourselves. This event was recorded on May 9, 2018, in front of a live audience at the Cape War Center for Social Impact in Oakland. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the future of work. Yes, we're, we're super happy to be here, and I'm super excited to get this conversation started uh, because I'm a little labor nerd. <laughs> so we're talking about the future of work, but to me that actually is talking about the future of life. And even though we had these really long introductions, let me just tell you what really brought me here tonight. And it was because I grew up in the South with enormous racism and sexism and all kinds of isms, and I couldn't wait to leave. (laughs) And so I went north and I studied math because I could do math. (laughs) I couldn't do English, I couldn't do history, but I could do math. But math turned out to not help me change the world. And I really did care about working on discrimination and sexism. So all my friends were studying economics. I said, well, hey, economics, that might be something that could help me change the world. And actually in those days, economists were changing the world. Now all we're doing is messing up the world. But we actually did at one point make some changes. And so I became an economist. And we can talk more about that, but I actually became a labor economist and worked on labor markets. And so even though I'm an economist, um, it's so nice to be here with a lawyer, somebody who can really change the world. (laughs) I think we can debate about who's best positioned to change the world. I feel like economists are in a little bit of a better position than than we lawyers are. Um, I think it's funny, my, my path was a little bit more windy I actually started off as an actress. Uh, that, that, that was what I went to undergrad for, and uh, I also w- lived in the South and uh, wanted to escape. Uh, so <laughs> I, I, I uh, went uh, up north to Carnegie Mellon to study acting and quickly realized that um, you know it was, it was really narcissistic and, and it was very shallow, and so I decided I was gonna be a lawyer instead. Uh, <laughs> um, and so I, I, I did, I mean, b- behind that was a lot of youthful passion and drive and I wanted to save the world too. I wanted to eliminate inequality. I was obsessed 
with the idea of justice. And um, I remember my junior year, I saw a documentary on the genocide in Rwanda, and it just like shocked my little Texan self um, into sort of a reality that I just had not imagined existed, right? A world where, um, you know, post-World War II, so many people could die sort of unnoticed, right? Um, and un unremarked on. So I decided I was going to go into international justice. And um, that is what I did. I went to law school, um, studied international human rights law. Uh, my first job was in Afghanistan, and I was really obsessed with the idea of pursuing justice for mass violence. And in my mind, mass violence meant war, right? So I went to Afghanistan, and then I went to um, uh, the border of Thailand and Burma, and I worked in a think tank and was looking at the war on terrorism and human rights protection therein. And and, and, and then, um, you know, I took some time, went back to the U.S., and um, after a couple years, I took a job in Nicaragua. And this was, like, post-recession. I went down there. I didn't really know what I was getting into. And I was started at this institute that was working with sugarcane workers who were dying of occupational illness. And that really woke me up to the reality of structural violence, right, which was not as glamorous or as visible as violence in wartime, but was as pernicious, right? And these sugarcane workers were, their kidneys were failing. And the town that I worked in, um, there were more coffin shops than there were restaurants, right? Because the population was dying so quickly. Um, and they were also dying, you know, invisibly, unnoticed by the world. And that's really what sort of woke me up to the power of work and how that can be such a determining factor for us. And, and that's, I think that's how I approach it today. It's why I started my business. And, and I think, why we're in conversation so <laughs> yes but let's let me just tell you as we move into talking about the future of work that I personally as an economist cannot talk about the future of work without also talking about the future of the planet because our two biggest challenges right now not personal challenges although they're involved but our biggest challenges as a society is inequality and climate change. So I worked on inequality for decades, and economists, we know how to get rid of inequality. We know how to create good jobs. We know how to make sure everyone has a decent job. We know how to do all those things. How do we know it? Because we do it in the US? No, no, no. We know it because Northern European countries have tried a lot of policies, and we know sort of what works, what works better, what doesn't work quite so well, but it all works. We actually know how to reduce inequality. We also know how to reduce carbon emissions. We have roadmaps. We have at least three roadmaps on how to go to a fossil-free environment. So we know how to do these things, and that's why I feel like powerless almost as an economist. Nobel laureates tell us we know how to get rid of inequality, we know how to go to a fossil-free world, but we don't do it. And so to me, to talk about the future of work, which we will be doing, I promise, but we have to put it in this larger context of what is going on in the world right now and how do our future lives fit into it? Because otherwise we really aren't gonna live in the world that we want to create. And, and we can, we really can. 
And I know that only because I became a practicing Buddhist. And I started teaching Buddhist economics. And that did give me new hope. So I have a book called Buddhist Economics that I teach at Berkeley. And it really opened the world to me to how to bring in shared prosperity, how to bring in sustainability, how to create meaningful lives and care for the human spirit. So I don't have nearly the expertise that Yvonne has. I mean, her expertise just blows me away. I love it. But um, together, we can explore these things. I really like that. I like the idea of collaborative exploration because I think to your point about just widening the lens a little bit, it's so important. Quite often I feel like these conversations about the future of work either about the future of technology or the future of the economy and they're not like about the future of us, right? Um, and so I, I, you know, hopefully, I, I hope that we can, we can get there today as we're, as we're talking. Um, so yeah, this, this is going to be really exciting. So tell me more, though, about how you see the future of work combined with marginalizing people and discrimination. Sure. Um, I have to do my little plug. I'm also, I'm working on a book. Uh, it's, I'm working on it. There's nothing to show you. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I think about the future of work, and I've really sort of struggled with this, as sort of the future of inequality and um, this, the future of our place, I feel like it's so hard to separate who we are from what we do, and we're going to talk about that later. But that's really um, sort of how I'm approaching it. And I and I think it's difficult to have this conversation because it's really hard to level set. The, the honest truth is we don't really know what the future of work looks like, right? There are some people who predict that, for example, White House economists predict that, you know, in the next few years, we're going to be automating most minimum wage jobs. That's one version of the future of work, right? Um, there's another version that says, you know, maybe we won't reach total unemployment until, you know, 100 years from now, but there's going to be sort of a steady slide and, and work will continue to be devalued and uh, the workplace will become more segmented. I tend to fall into that camp. I think the future of work um, is a future where the labor market is more competitive, where good jobs are scarcer, and the employer-employee relationship becomes more fraught if non-existent at all, um, and corporations have more power. And so we're going to be talking about all of that stuff, but what I try to think about is then what does that mean for us? Um, because a lot of the, f the struggles we have fought um, that have been proxies for other things have centered around work. So when we think about the fight for equality, for women to, per to be, you know, seen as leaders, a lot of times that that's about workforce participation. And the same goes for, you know, um, people from marginalized ethnic groups, right? We, we tend to view success through our ability to participate in the workplace. And at the same time, we're seeing backslides in some of these gains. So I, I'm really curious in thinking about the future of work through, through the lens of the future of inequality. Um, and that's sort of how I approach it. But I would love to hear how you're thinking about it, Claire. Well, for me as an economist, what's critical is how we structure the, mark, the marketplace. So we, and what does that mean? It means that the economy is created by the government and by the institutions that build around the culture. So the future of work to me could go in almost any direction. We know that technology brings in automation and, and actually a lot of great things. To be honest, I love automation. 
Automation gets rid of some of the worst parts of work. But, it, and, and then it gives us time to actually do more interesting things at work. But it only works in the long run for the people if the government comes in and says, okay, we're gonna structure the marketplace and the market and the economy in a way that everybody has access to meaningful work and everybody's gonna get decent pay and you know what, the work week's gonna go down to 20 hours a week. So the government does that, not corporations. Corporations will not do that. Corporations are more than happy to keep us working 24 seven and in the tech world, I see that all the time, especially if you're under 30. I, I see 24-7 lives, and I talk to the people involved. Do you like, no, no, I want more balance, but I don't have the power to do it. And there's where we need to talk a lot about how do you create, in the workplace, jobs that we actually want to have that give meaningful life. And I've thought a lot about that and worked on that. And let me tell you, you don't do it as an individual. <laughs> no way. You'll get fired. Or you better have a good job waiting for you when you go complain. Um, but there are things you can do. And, but it's within a group setting. But the thing is, is that if we leave it up to corporations, we will all continue to work 24-7. We won't have reduction in the work week. We'll see more and more people unemployed as we automate or outsource or, or whatever we're doing to um, make higher profits and, and low cost jobs. So the role of the government for me is paramount. And the EU is way ahead of us. They are so much better at not only structuring the marketplace to get the outcomes that they want, but also ensuring that there is a great social safety net that helps people when they need help, great um, programs for children to help children do well and thrive, and also uh, caring for people. They, you get time off from work to care for people. You, so we need to think about how to do that in the United States. We, we know we can do it, but we just have to come together to create the system that allows that to happen. Because what I want to see, and again, in Buddhist economics, you want to set up a system where we allow, we have a balanced life. You say, oh, what's meaningful to you? What do you want to do in your life? What do you care about? And it's not working 24-7 for your employer. It's having a job where you can do the work you want to do, you have personal development, and you have time to care for your family, your community, and to make a contribution outside the workplace. So you want to contribute at work, but you also want to contribute outside of work. And so that takes us all back to sort of what is well-being for people. I think it's interesting, though, because I want to pause for a second and kind of go back to, to, to what you're saying about the role of government. I think it's really interesting. I think that that is at least in the U.S. context, a project that we've never really quite undertaken. I think there's a lot of romanticization about what happened sort of in the post-war period, how we built the middle class. But I think it's, you know, even when we did that and even when we look at the New Deal, um, that was really set up for a small group of the population, right? Um, for Not for the majority of the American workers, but um, particularly for white male American workers, right? And so the idea that we would be able to 
to make those guarantees in a way that would um, prevent us from seeing inequality the way that we're used to seeing it is is is, is quite revolutionary because you know in the U.S. we're a very diverse co uh, country that's always had a, a workforce that's been segmented in a lot of ways by identity, right? And so the question is, how do you come up with the collective good? In, a, in, an, in an environment where there's, that's never really, really happened. And so, yeah, I, I, I think your question's interesting, but I wanted to sort of highlight that point as well because I think that that's really the challenge is that we've just really never, we've never done that. And in a lot of ways, our workforce is predicated on exclusion and how do you sort of break that? I don't, I don't know. Well, I... Hey, I'm an economist, and I think you break it through the law. <laughs> I, I, mean, I, I, worked, <laughs> I worked a lot on, on discrimination, and starting with my dissertation. And what really astonished me in looking at, at trying to have laws that gave equal opportunity across the board and didn't allow employers to discriminate at the workplace what astonished me is if there was a good law and it was enforced, it made a difference. But if they just tried to change the culture or ask companies to treat workers fairly, nothing happened. Or if they went and asked, oh, let everyone vote, you know, it's, it's important that we all vote, nothing happened. It only happened when a law was made and enforced. And so I became a really big believer in if we want certain outcomes, we have to structure the, the law so that we get those outcomes. And it's not that they're going to happen automatically, um, because well, Yvonne can tell you, I'm sure, many stories about enforcement, as I can, actually, um, in the labor market. But it's where you have to start. You have to have a law, and you have to enforce it because you want a specific outcome. And if you want companies to come along and as if they agree with you and want to make it happen, then you have to give them both incentives and you have to give them punishment. So then you'll get some action. But you can't just say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if uh, employers, you know, didn't discriminate and they paid women and blacks fairly and they promoted fairly and they, wouldn't it be nice if they gave us time to take care of our families and our children? Um, that's not, it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, I think the, the enforcement part is critical though, because even if we look at the anti-discrimination laws we have on the books now, and tech is a great example, my, my whole company is around getting other companies in tech to become more diverse and inclusive, and it's such an uphill battle, even though there's legal protection on the books, right? And that's because like, without getting too 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 geeky that you know when we look at like the the arm of enforcement of the Department of Labor for example it's been gutted right and um, just when we look at wage and hour claims in California, they're just super hard to enforce, right? And so, like the enforcement piece, um, I, I don't think it can, be, it can be underestimated. I tend to come at this, if you can't tell, from a fairly pessimistic uh, standpoint. I, you know, I found um, I just finished reading uh, late. I'm late to 
the game. I'm always late to the game. But I just finished reading Capital in the 21st Century, and I found Piketty's um, discussion of how change happens in the labor market to be particularly instructive, right? Because he frames it as the result of a series of historical shocks that really forced people with money to A, give away their money through war and all this stuff, um, but B, really kind of shook the foundations of society in such a way that worker protection became an option. And I think that um, when we talk about enforcement, I think that there has to be a collective will around enforcement. And my fear with the future of work is that by the time we get that collective will, it may be too late, right? Like we may have to experience the shock. And, you know, given the scale of what we're talking about, that shock could be quite scary. Well, I think we're already experiencing a huge shock um, in two ways. One is technology and the other is climate change. And if we don't respond now, we'll never respond. And in fact, we'll, we'll kill the planet for human life as we know it. So, so let me though, and you wouldn't believe it, but I'm actually an optimist. <laughs> I'm a total optimist. Um, but let me, let me bring it down home just a little bit because I've worked a lot with engineers in the Silicon Valley and I've spent a lot of time with high-tech companies. And one of the things that really surprised me, and this was starting back in the 90s, was working with engineers. They were always, of course, super bright, super talented, and totally trusting of their employers. And just a second, I, I would show. I had what I call career ladders. So if you look at age and you see what happens to people's careers, they did... If they, in their 20s, if they were willing to work really hard, and especially if they were white and male, no problem. But even the white males, after they turned 40, started to experience career problems. And the women already knew about discrimination. They didn't have any problem not knowing that they would be discriminated against. Yes, that was a fact of life. Um, and so they understood they had to work with that. But they still trusted their employers way too much. And, and so everywhere I went, it was like these really talented, smart, super hardworking people are over-trusting. And so, especially when the labor market was better, they would say, oh, well, you know. I said, no, really, this is the time you should be changing jobs. You've got to take care of your career. Your employer is not going to take care of your career. And so young people in their 20s, when they're in a good labor market and they don't know sort of a long, longer time frame, they think, well, this is just great and I'm doing so terrific. And then there's a bust, which always comes, and then bam, they all get hit, they all get laid off, they, they lose stock, they, they lose everything, right? Um, they often have to go back to a different part of the country or a different country or wherever because they can't support themselves. So one of the first things about the future of work for me is that we're always going to have boom-bust cycles. And so you really do, rule number one from a labor economist is you take care of yourself. You look after yourself. You protect yourself. You really do what you need to do to push forward your career when you can and prepare for periods of bust because they always come. And you, as an individual, are pretty powerless to stop a bust. But you can prepare for a bust. 
And so now today, the shocks are here, and so the bus that we have to prepare for are much bigger than your just typical boom bus cycle. Now we have to ask how do we want to prepare both for climate change and for technological uh, change, which is here. It's not in the future, it's here. I think that's really interesting. I mean, as you were saying that, I was wondering, like, how do we prepare for a bust? I was also reflecting on my own savings account. And, and, and I think it's, I mean, I think it, part of it, I mean, I joke, but I think part of this is real, right? I think that, the, that you know, I say this as a woman who's in my mid to late 30s, and I, I, the, econ, the wealth that I have amassed and the economic stability that I have is very different than my parents did at this time, right? So when I think about my ability to prepare to be, mobile, go from job to job to have savings in case something goes wrong, stable housing situation in this Bay Area nightmare. Like it's just, you know, it's, it's, it, I feel like we're so much more vulnerable and I feel like that's almost intentional, right? Like, like, you know, in some ways we're able to be more critical of our employers because we have more access to information. We can sort of see all these debates going on, but at the same time we're captured by them, right? Captured in a way that I don't know if, if uh, other people were. And as we think about how, you know, also government services are paring down and things that used to, even if they were coupled with our employment status, live a little bit outside of that, that could help us aren't there as much anymore. You know, welfare has changed, how we afford houses have changed, taxes have changed, and everything feels like, you know, it's a moving towards more privatization. And so I think, I think that that point is a really interesting one. And I guess my, I'm going to ask a question is like, given this context, how do we do that? How do we make folks resilient and able to make those preparations given the current climate? Well, I could answer it until you added the last three words, <laughs> given the current climate. Yeah. First of all, we have to change the climate. Yeah. There's, there's nothing we can do. California, we're luckier than other places. But even in California, we need to change the big business being in charge of so much, um, even here. But let, so, so let's just talk a little bit about the role of government. And once again, I go to the EU. I, a lot of the policy work that I do really looks at what is, what is the European Union doing and how well is it working. So we end up saying, okay, what's the most important thing for financial security? It's the social safety net, including retirement pay. So the idea that everybody deserves a decent job is, is not a radical idea. It's a, it's a basic human right. Everybody deserves a decent job. And so a lot of the social safety net discussion today is not just universal basic income, which, to be honest, is really limited. I think it's fine to have it, but it's never going to be high enough. And I hate the idea of saying, oh, this discussion's going on in Europe, by the way. Oh, we have a universal basic income. Now we don't have to worry about people working and having decent jobs. Say, excuse me? You go out and talk to people and you say, do you, do you want a lousy monthly payment and then we can just throw you away and forget about you? Because, hey, we, you, we gave you a monthly payment. And everyone to a person says, no, I have skills and talents and I want to contribute to the community. I want to be part of the community and the, and the social good. Well, of course we all do. Somebody said, would you just take a basic social payment and, and we can forget about it? I said, well, maybe when I'm 85, 
<laughs> I'll take it, okay. Um, but we really need these basic rights, which are a social safety net that goes way beyond this idea of just a universal payment. And then at the workplace, we need to be able to have enforcement of all the things that we, actually many of them we have on the book already. We have, we have health, we have safety, we have anti-discrimination, we have equal pay. Um, the court's interpretation of them needs to be, this is your field, but, <laughs> but needs to be improved. I got to tell you that you probably won't know this, but I was shocked by this, but I lived through it. When we first had anti-discrimination laws, it wasn't based upon anything other than what's the outcome. So if there were 10% blacks in this area, then the, out, the workforce should be 10% black. If there were 40% women, it should be 40% women. And the dean of the Berkeley Law School came and taught this to me. I said, you know, I need a really quick lesson in anti-discrimination law because I need to teach it. And she came and taught the class and then she taught me. And it was the outcome. If you have disparate outcomes, there was automatically known to be discrimination going on with that employer. But then the courts got hold of it, and guess what they did? They went into, oh, what's the motivation? And so all of a sudden, over time, it wasn't right away, but it took, it took a few years, all of a sudden, big business would just say, oh, we don't discriminate. Look, we ask everybody the same questions, and we do this sort of merit analysis, because they hired really smart lawyers who came and said, here's what you do. And you never ask women about children, and you, you never ask people about anything that might raise who they are or what's their background. You, so we'll, we'll show you what you can ask, and then you'll never get a charge of discrimination, which was a huge setback. And that might be some of the things that really upset you. So it was like, one of the things we need to understand and appreciate is if we leave social change up to companies, the change will not be the change that we want and desire. The change has to be related to the outcomes that we think are just and fair and create the community and the world we want. I think that's really interesting. I think the social safety net piece is so huge. It's one personally that I just think of all the time because I will probably never retire. <laughs> and I say, you know, I, it's, I say that only half in jest, but the retirement age is increasing and the likelihood that uh, people my age will be able to have the savings at the level they need, have whatever wealth they have that they need, and also have a you know, secure, social security you know, system that works is seems like it's decreasing more and more every day. Um, and so I think that I think as we think about the future of work sort of circling back um, and not just, you know, protection from discrimination, but the, but the, the future to live robust lives in the absence of a certain kind of work generally, I think the social safety net piece is um, just so huge. And I just, you know, and today I kind of wonder what that would look like. To your point, I think that there have been good models. I wonder if those models are sustainable. I feel like even in Europe, we're seeing movement towards more privatization in certain places. And so I would be interested to hear your, your thoughts about that. And if those models 
are also scalable. I think one of the things that's so attractive about UBI, which I really dislike that idea, is that, you know, it, it's the idea that it's going to take care of everyone and we won't have to ask those difficult questions. Um, and, we, and then we just avoid a whole other set of difficult questions. And so, yeah, I, I, I wonder about that as well. I just, I, I also want to take a moment to talk about UBI because I'm just, it's my life's mission to like demystify this as like a thing. Um, and I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but I, I feel like the, the idea of UBI is, is, is so um, dangerous in a way. Um, I feel like it's like a Band-Aid. Um, I feel like it doesn't, address the true like the true nature of what happens to your point Claire when people become unemployed the despair that you see the the increased drug use and um oftentimes increased rates of domestic violence and and all of these 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 like well-being things that happen in their life UBI does not handle that um and I I I also always ask like you know who's going to pay for it not just in the sense that like oh, we could never have high taxes, but also I think UBI, the proposals I've seen rely heavily on corporate contribution, and I wonder what that means for the purposes of corporate power. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously, as you've already mentioned, um, how, how it sort of erases this sort of nuanced approach that we have to supporting people, right? We just have one payment and that's your payment. And if you can make it off that payment, great. But if you can't, oh well. And it's not really an approach that's rooted in equity, right? Because we know what the wealth disparity looks like in this country. We know what the care disparity looks like in terms of who has to take care of whom. And so the idea that you could have a one payment that would ha keep all of that in mind and, and support equitable outcomes I think is 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 a, is is a nice thought, but I think it's a really hard thing to achieve. Um, but I do wonder, what does the social safety net of the future look like? Like, I think that, that that's a really interesting question. Um, let me say that I think it's all affordable. As an economist, let me remind us that we live in an extraordinarily rich country. We have a carbon footprint that's not sustainable. Our standard of living is so high. And so let me just say, we are rich. The problem is it's not shared prosperity. The problem is financial insecurity. The problem is inequality. So, if you look at the United States, economic growth used to be the tide that lifted all ships. So economists loved economic growth. There's more and more output. We all do better. Well, 40 years ago, that stopped. The tide came in, and most of the ships were just not even touched, except the rich. So over 80% of all economic growth in the United States in the last four decades has gone to the top five to 10% of the, of the workers, which are managers, and some celebrities, and, and some crooks. <laughs> Actually, I, I personally, every time I've ever studied wealth, um, to be really wealthy in this country, you have to have a shady background, or you have to be phenomenal in sports. Like, take your pick. <laughs> but, the, so that, 
as an economist, when I think about the future, which is actually happening right now, you have to say, okay, what's, what's the pie? That's, that's our GDP. What's in the pie? Oh, does it matter? Yeah, it really does matter. It really does matter what we're producing and how we're consuming it and how it affects our lives. But then I go a step further. In Buddhist economics, you don't just look at market output. You look at use of all time and resources and community life. And now your pie looks really different. It's like, oh, it's not just consumption, but it's the way we're living. Now, all economists will say how you divide the pie is important. That's inequality. But it's not just how you divide consumption. That's important. But it's how you divide sort of life opportunities for all of us so that we can all live meaningful lives. Now, everybody in this room, by world standards, we all have great lives. And I'm really grateful for having an education, having a good job, and being, a, being here tonight. So the question then becomes, what's the problem? The problem is people in this room are kind and compassionate and decent people, but that the, the people who are running our government and most of our companies, in fact, are too greedy and are not giving us the outcomes that we want at work, at home, or at the, at the community. And so we can change that. And the social safety net is one big part of it, but it actually goes way beyond that. And getting back to Vaughn's point, you know, the social, a part of the social safety net um, for economists is worker power. It's like, it's not just what do you do when you get laid off, it's what do you do when you're at work to improve what's happening at work. And so if layoffs are made, are they made in a way that takes care of people? Are they done fairly? But we need a lot more worker power in the United States than we have. And Germany and France are both really good examples of worker involvement and worker power in the workplace. So you, you know that already is being educated and thoughtful people, but you also might feel pretty powerless at work. Not when, not when the labor market's doing so well, you have a little bit more power. But let me tell you, when the bus comes, your power is busted. And that's when you have to work together. And that's when we really do need worker power. I think worker power is such an interesting question. When, when I was in Nicaragua, um, you know, one of the things that people, that we really wanted to push for, uh, for the sugarcane workers was unionization, right? Because the idea was that they could not uh, control how long they worked, the conditions they worked under, the chemicals they were exposed to, um, you know, their ability to care for their children outside of work, what that balance looked like, because... Um, the the ingenio the factory owns so much of their lives and i think you know sometimes work creates this artificial like demarcation oh there's work and then there's outside of work when in reality what we see is work bleeding into almost everything right more and more and that can happen with technology or without technology and that certainly happened for the workers in nicaragua um and the ingenio was scared to death that they would unionize they tried to do everything in the power so they wouldn't they used a third-party subcontractor so there was no direct labor relationship between uh the workers and the Ingenio, they cracked down on unions, you know, busted unions, all of this stuff. Um, 
you know, I that really got me thinking about solidarity movements and collective bargaining and where the power of workers both in the agricultural space and beyond really lied. And I think it's a really critical question for the future of work that's happening now and what will happen um, after now. I also think it's a big part of how we determine the future of work, to be perfectly honest, right? The future of work is kind of what we make of it at this point. And there are companies that are doing things and automating people out of jobs in a way that like might not be so great, right? And I'm not, you know, someone who's opposed to all forms of technology, but I really like responsible ethical forms of technology, which I hope everybody does. Um, and, 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 and I'm a little bit hesitant um, when I see companies doing things just because they can, right? Um, and I see this like in AI and machine learning a lot, um, sort of in the bias embedded therein, but that's a different topic. So I think, you know, for me, the idea of, you know, the, the teacher strikes that, that have been popping up around the country are really exciting. I think they remind us of the power of, uh, you know, our collective voice. I think we've also seen that solidarity movements can be really powerful movements across constituencies um, and, um, and across sectors. Um, I even think to a certain extent, like Me Too is a really great model for that. Um, how you have these actors in Hollywood who are supposed to be in the bubble and the next thing you know, there's a fund for domestic workers, right? And so they're sort of trying to reach back and make sure that those people have legal protections uh, where they don't um, normally. So I think that we should, we should start getting creative about how we leverage our collective power, and we should do so, to your point, Claire, in a moment where we actually have it, because, you know, in a bus cycle, we won't uh, have it so much anymore, and that, and that will be exploited. It always is. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think that there's a lot of opportunity there. And, and we have to do it together. In labor economics, there's a rule that one person has no power but you get a group of like even 10 people in the workplace and all of a sudden the power relationship has changed, especially during a tight labor market. So there's some other, we have lots of scenes in labor economics. Hey, we've been around a long time, you know, centuries. And so another saying is the minimum wage is the poor man's union. So that one of the reasons, and, and minimum wages we haven't mentioned, but that's one of the really important changes that we have been doing in the labor market more recently, that we've finally gotten minimum wages throughout the, the country raised, and they will continue to go up. And my colleagues at UC Berkeley have shown that raising minimum wages definitely helps people's income without reducing jobs so that it's a great social policy. Now, it happened actually because of a lot of workplace agitation as well as a little bit of academic help. But trust me, the workers made it happen, especially in the fast food restaurants. So that is a really good recent example of how workers created change. How do engineers make change or how do tech workers make change? Out in the Silicon Valley, I've seen it happen, where, in fact, a group would get together and say, the way we're, we're working isn't, isn't making it for us. And in a couple, at least a few companies, they would go and say, we don't want anybody working on the weekends, for example. And they, as a group, could make that happen. But they had to do it as a group, and they had to do it in negotiations with management. 
they had to have goals of what they thought would work. And in some other companies, they actually got um, the right to work, at, work from home certain days. And while they were working from home, they did not have to check in, for example. So these were things that were important to groups of workers, but they had to do it together. They had to do it with a, a critical number during a tight labor market. So tight labor markets, I think, are workers' best friends. I love tight labor markets because it does give workers power. And the minute labor markets get weak, <laughs> the employer has all the power then. And they use it. They use it to say, oh, we have to cut labor costs. We're so sorry. We know you're all good workers, but we have to lay you off anyway. And no, we, don't, we really can't give you severance pay. Our stockholders don't like it. I mean, you know, they, they know all the reasons to tell you which just mean that they're just trying to make more money for themselves. Because I have some footnotes in my book that I just love that say, actually, what's the relationship between CEO pay and company performance? Is it positive? No, actually, for the top 500 companies, it's negative. With CEO pay goes up, company performance goes down. And so, they, but that's, but you will hear that as a reason why CEO pay, and not just CEO, but all top management pay is so high. We earned it. But in fact, they didn't. And there are other studies, similar studies, that show that companies that care about their workforce and have policies that sort of integrate work in ways that the workers are used to helping create, those companies perform better. So when they have human resource management that we call it worker-friendly, those companies actually behave, perform better. Now, you go out and you talk to companies about this, which I do, I will show them the results, and my friends from Wharton show them the results. I say, why don't these companies change? And there's no good answer. There really is no good answer. The, the best answer, though, the true answer, is they don't change because these, the, the main focus of the top management is their pay and earnings. And they, when they maximize that, then sort of all these other things go aside because they don't get punished for bad performance. They are still taking home enormous pay. Almost, well, in my mind, it is immoral pay. And so that the difference between CEO pay and average worker pay in the 50s was much smaller. It's skyrocketed now. In the 50s, you would actually hear managers say, I only earn 50 times what my average worker pays. And, and, you know, and I think that's a little too high, maybe. These managers actually talked about it and took some pride in not having too big an earnings gap. Do you hear today managers in talking about the earnings gap? No, actually in private they do. But that's because they brag. Oh man, did you see how much I took home? And do you know how much my workers get now? Nothing. It's like, it's amazing. So once again, the safety net to me brings in a lot of cultural questions and social norms that are not okay for the people or for the country. 
I think that's really interesting. You, t- you touched on so many interesting things. I was like, I want to say this, and I want to say this. But I do want to say this. Um, one thing that, that I, I found interesting, just returning to the bit about worker power, is not even, I mean, there's an example of workers leveraging their power not even inside the company. So um, I, for this to, for the sake of being a, a decent human, um, I'm not going to name this company, but there was a company that hired a high-profile technology technology executive who was known to be a harasser and had left a toxic uh, another toxic company to join this company and they sort of hired this person and still had it like the banner of like oh we're like diverse and inclusive and we we value all, all these other people and they kept trying to recruit women engineers and in Silicon Valley there's a whisper network right where everybody tells each other oh you don't want to work for so and so because he's a problem and so these engineers started publicly shaming this company and saying we're not going to work for you because your CTO is a serial harasser and it happened in public and private enough times where they actually let the man go and so those people did not work for that company but that company made a business decision on the basis of their advocacy which I think tells you like how powerful collective action can be in a labor market um, like this Um, but I think to your point about uh, CEO compensation I mean, when we think about the future of inequality, I think that's huge. Um, and I and I feel like, you know, one of the things that industrial revolutions do, which is kind of what we're in the middle of right now, um, or a series of them, I don't know anymore, is make uh, rich people richer, right? Because the technology makes whatever processes they're engaging in more efficient. They make labor cheaper. Um, they make production go up, um, and that benefit drifts up, right? It doesn't necessarily trickle down like everybody says it does, and I'm not an economist, nowhere near one, but I think that if we sort of take a look at the historical trends, I think there's every reason to believe that if technology improves, the financial gain will continue to go to the rich and exacerbate that, that pay gap that you're talking about um, without, any, without outside intervention. Oh, without intervention at all levels. The intervention, as you mentioned earlier, needs to begin at the workplace. Workers need to be involved in how the technology is implemented. The workers are designing the technology. They know the technology, but they have to be part of the implementation process. And so that's absolutely critical. And then on top of that, if you have a social safety net that Governments set the average work week. They set um, all the programs for family life care. They basically set up the structure for how many hours you work and are paid for. And so if you take that combined with workers inside the companies involved with what's the new technology, how do we implement it, then you can move to a different world where we can start balancing family life. There is no reason in the world, I love AI, I truly love AI, if it's done by the workers inside the company and used as a tool to move us to a work and family balancing of life. You know, we we really do know we don't want to just live to work. We do care about living a meaningful life. We do care about contributing outside of the workplace. And we can do this, but Yvonne, you're you're exactly right. We can only do it when the workers are part of the process of the design. 
I think it's interesting. I think there is a relationship between, I mean, we've seen this historically too, with the, the, the political power that unions used to have, but we keep talking about uh, government intervention, regulatory intervention, and the reality is, at least right now, um, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. And even when you have a government that's friendly to workers, um, they don't necessarily understand technology in a way where they can regulate it, you know, productively. So I think, you know, I, I wonder, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the sort of social changes that need to happen. And so I just talked about government. In a, in a vacuum um, as, as it sits separately. But I wonder also the sort of political inquiry we will have to do to get us to a place where we do have governments in place that are able to provide us with the protections that we, that we need. Oh, I, I think it's critical, but I think we're already seeing that happen at the local and state levels with, with the minimum wage, for example. Actually, the hours are set at the state level, not the federal level. So that's really important. A lot of the labor law in, is set at the state level. And in California, we can fight for specific outcomes that we think are important. And we have, we have a chance of getting them if we collectively decide how are we going to prioritize, say, when should overtime pay start? Should we have paid family leave? Should we have paid childcare? Should we have different programs that are part of the state law for how labor markets work? And we, we can do that. And we can take Sweden and Finland and Norway as examples of how these programs work because they actually work really well. And they're not, once again, they're not that expensive compared to our GDP. We, we have the money. We just have to have more progressive taxes where we actually fairly tax people, and then we use those revenues to create the community life and the family life that we all would need and want. It's, 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 it's actually not a big deal once we have the political will. I think that's interesting, and I know that um, we're running up on the 10-minute mark, and there is something that we both really wanted to talk about, and you said community life and family life, and I feel like that's just a natural segue to sort of talk about at the end of the day, you know, we started about talking, talking about whole people and identity and, and, and zooming out. And so I'm wondering if we can circle back to that and think about, think about this through the lens of what kind of world do we actually want to create as we think about the future of work? What does that, what does that look like? Um, and I'll, I, I will say this um, as a sort of way to kick this off. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the role of work in constituting our social identity. And so I feel like, you know, I'm African-American. I'm a slave descendant African-American. My ancestors were brought to this country to work involuntarily, to be forced to work. And because of that, they were characterized in a way, right? The men were seen as, you know, aggressive and needing to be whipped and chained and held down and disciplined. And the women were generalized in, in being hypersexual in a way. And we were all not human. And we were all incapable of making decisions and participating in public life. And we 
as an African-American struggle against some of those same stereotypes today? When we think about what are some of the negative aspects of our identity stereotypes that we must combat, they are closely tied to that historical condition. And so I, you know, I, I think about that and I look at the way that work is structured today and I feel like even if it's not just about slavery um, and it's about race in general and say the same thing, for example, for Asian Americans who came, came over um, to, to build the railroads and, and later um, in the post-communist era and how they were positioned vis-a-vis other people of color and in the labor market. Um, so often the jobs that we get access to are just tied to who we, how we present socially, you know, and it also happens with gender. And so when I think about this kind of post-work world, in a way, I also hope it's a post-identity world, right? An identity that's not, a, a world post-identity that's tied to our utility or a function in a particular market. Um, and, and one that relates more with how we interact with our communities and the social structures we build and the contribution that we're able to make for a greater good. Um, so, I, I mean, that sounds, sounds really warm and fuzzy, but yeah. No, no, I think it's absolutely on point because to me the main question each of us needs to ask is what makes life meaningful and how can I structure my life to live in a way where I'm, I can fully develop who I am and yet reach out and care for other people and care for the earth and that also involves getting off the sofa and going out and being involved politically and changing the world within a group that you like to work with. We, we all have the responsibility today to get politically involved, to get back to caring for each other, caring for the earth, and it's our responsibility. So we, we already know that we aren't gonna be happy focused on consumption, but we all, once we have a comfortable life and once we have jobs where we we can actually make a contribution at work. We really want to make a contribution to our whole well-being. And the whole well-being is for everybody in the room, in the community, and actually in the world. We want to care about shared prosperity globally. And to me, that's, that's the name of the game. And work is one part of it, but we need to bring it all together. Yeah, I think I, think I would agree with that. I think it does... I mean, I think it's a lot easier said than done, right? I mean, we're, you know, the Puritan values run deep in this country. You go to a party and the first question everybody asks is, what do you do, you know? I don't know if we know how to ask each other who we are outside of that question. Um, that being said, I, 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 definitely, I definitely agree um, with that sentiment. And I think that there is like, you know, I think I I always say like technology in a lot of ways is a mirror. And I think that this particular revolution and work is holding up a mirror to us and saying, who are we going to be? I mean, our humanity is actually the question, right? As we think about like the rise of the robots. Um, And also what does utility mean and what does contribution mean? Um, You know, I I think that there's an opportunity to really say, and in all of that, who are we? Where do we find our power? How do we really sort of contribute. Yes, and let me say, we all need to be fearless warriors in terms of having the courage to stand up and work with the people around us to change and create the world we want. I have loved this conversation. I have too. Thank you so much for this. Oh, and thank you all for being here and joining in. Yeah, thank you.
You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.